And let's, uh, let's pray together as we prepare to dive into the word of the Lord. God, we are in awe of the wondrous mystery of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Jesus, you are part of the Trinity, and yet you gave up your glory to put on flesh, to make known your will here on earth, and to fulfill your word by the way that you lived, by the way that you died and rose again, the way that you're continuing to work in the world, interceding at the right hand of the Father. Lord, you've granted us your spirit that we might understand and apply what you've placed in your word. And so, God, I pray over these next few minutes as we open your word together, I just ask, Lord, that you would help us. Grant us insight and wisdom, understanding. Father, help me to clearly and accurately convey the truths of your word. Speak, we pray, for your people are listening. Amen. Amen. Well, about 20 years ago, a couple of famous guys got together and they wrote a book. Tony Campolo is a professor of sociology up at Eastern University, and Brian McLaren is a pastor of, a, or was a pastor of a church over in Burtonsville. And they got together and they wrote a book entitled Adventures in Missing the Point. And their book was a thought-provoking and challenging look at the way of that church, the church in America and generally the Western church has developed over the last several years. It's been a while, frankly, since I looked at the book, since I read it, and I don't agree with all of the conclusions they came to. So I can't necessarily endorse it. But as I was reading, as I was studying this passage this week, that title kept coming to my mind. And so I decided to borrow it. I figured I'd give credit where credit is due. I did not come up with the title, Adventures in Missing the Point. McLaren and Campolo did that. But you see, their book was designed to be a wake-up call to the church. And I think as we consider John chapter 3 today, this is really in many ways a wake-up call to those of us who think we have all the answers. Up to this point in the book of John, we've been introduced to Jesus as the Word made flesh. We saw that in the beginning part of John chapter 1. We got introduced to John the Baptist, Jesus' forerunner, as he prepared the way for Jesus' ministry. We got a chance to see the calling of his first disciples, and then we also witnessed his first sign when he changed the water into wine. And then last week, we looked at the shakeup that he held in the temple as he tried it really rattled to the core so many of the practices and and patterns that were at play in the temple in Jerusalem all of these encounters are playing into John's larger narrative if you remember he's doing all these things so that we would see who Jesus is as the son of God and that in response to who he is in response to the evidence that John is laying out before us that we would respond with belief And so today, as we look at John chapter 3, we're going to get a little bit of a different encounter because it's not Jesus doing something miraculous. It's not Jesus um, 
creating a scene. It's Jesus having a conversation. And not just with anybody, but with a religious leader named Nicodemus. So if you have your copy of God's Word, I want to encourage you to open it to John chapter 3. Because rather than trying to come up with an outline, I want us just to walk through this passage in bits and pieces. And really consider some things that are there. And then we're going to conclude. If you notice in your outline, we have some points to ponder. We'll conclude with some things, hopefully, that we can hang our hat on by the time we get done. So John chapter 3, you know, there may be, as we're going through, if I know some people don't like to write in their Bibles. I love to write in my Bible. I love to make notes. In fact, one of the Bibles, we did a sword drill in the middle school class this morning. And the, the, the Bible that I used in high school is one of the ones that the kids are using. And it's all colored up and written. In fact, Julian, it was hard to find stuff because of all the colors in there. It was crazy. But all that to say, if you'd like to mark up your Bible, today might be a good time to do that. Um, If you're not a Bible marker, that's fine. Just make metal notes. But let me encourage you to have it in front of you, but it'll also be on the screen. So let's begin with some reflections on the passage. John chapter 3, verse 1 begins this way. It says, Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. You see, as a Pharisee, Nicodemus was a devout Jewish leader. And he was a part of their ruling council. He was, it was called the Sanhedrin. And these guys would get together. They would meet to, to pass rules and laws to really govern the Jewish people in that time. Pharisees generally tried to put rules and expectations out in, or, in place in order to help people live out the law, in order for, to help people obey the law. And frankly, Pharisees kind of got a bad rap because they... They sometimes came across as being legalistic, rightly so. So Nicodemus is in that group. But likely Nicodemus knew Scripture well. What we would call the Old Testament, he knew like the back of his hand. Every wrinkle that I see, every callus, he knew Scripture that way. And so he comes to Jesus John chapter 3, verse 2, it says, this man came to Jesus by night. Now, there are a lot of people who want to look at that and they want to say, well, well, why did he come at night? And frankly, John doesn't tell us. A lot of people want to surmise maybe it, he was trying to be secretive. Maybe he didn't want anybody else to know. That's possible. Maybe this was the only time that Jesus had available because so many people wanted to spend with him. So the conclusion we kind of have to come to is, frankly, they met after sundown. Why? We don't know. John doesn't give us that insight. We can guess and surmise, but we don't know. But then, continuing in John chapter 2, Nicodemus makes his first comment. He opens up this conversation with this. He says, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs unless God is with him. I want you to think about a couple of words that that he uses there. First of all, he uses the word rabbi. You see, a rabbi would have come up through a very specific school. He would have had a, a certain kind of training. He would have followed certain rules, followed other teachers in a certain way. Jesus had none of that. Jesus just sort of pops onto the scene. In fact, that was part of the challenge is all these rabbis, all these religious leaders thought, well, who are you? Nobody knows who you are. What good can come out of Nazareth? And yet, whether he was placating Jesus or whether he was showing genuine respect, we don't really know. But Nicodemus gave Jesus the title rabbi. You see, Jesus had obviously caught the attention of the clergy and the commoners alike. 
But there's another word I want us to think about, and, and that is the word we. You know, he, Nicodemus says, we know that you are a teacher come from God. Well, who is the we? I mean, we know that royal people like to talk in we's. They have the royal we, and we decided that the laws shall be thus and such, right? Well, who is the we? Is it Nicodemus and his followers? Because being a teacher, he would have likely had a handful of younger people following him around, learning in fact, some people believe that the, the word disciple meant to, to connotate it to kind of catch the dust of your master's, the dust that came off of your master's feet, kind of to be so close that you get dusty with all of his walkings around. So maybe it's his followers. Maybe he's speaking on behalf of the other religious leaders. It seems, though, that he is alone with Jesus, but yet he may have this group of people. So we don't really know who the we is. But it kind of makes you wonder. But there's one other thing I want us to notice. And that is the word signs. Nicodemus seems to concede that the signs he is seeing from Jesus are from God. They, they have a divine initiative. And, but yet up to this point, in John's narrative, he's only showed us one sign. And that was turning the water into wine. Because remember, John selectively pulled out a handful of signs for us to see. So Nicodemus has obviously seen more than just water the wine. Maybe he didn't even see that. Maybe he just heard about it. But he could see healings and all sorts of other things. And so Nicodemus, he doesn't really raise a question, but he makes a comment. You must be from God. No one else can do these things unless God were with him. To which Jesus responds. He answers, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So Nicodemus is aware that Jesus is at least doing things because God is with him. And yet Jesus lays down this gauntlet by stating, by stating that you can't see, you can't witness the kingdom of God unless you're born again. I almost wonder if Jesus is sort of affirming Nicodemus's burgeoning faith. Nicodemus seems to be indicating, hey, I'm curious here. And maybe, I almost wondered, maybe Jesus is saying, hey, Nick, you're seeing things because you have new eyes to see. Maybe he's saying, putting a wall up, saying, you're not going to get it until you're born again. But which, speaking of that word born again, that word in Greek, this was so interesting. It can mean again, or it can mean from above. We have a lot of words in English that are like that. You, they, two words saying the same thing, spelled the same way, but meaning, having a broader range of meaning than just the one way. So you can interpret it one way, and yet the speaker would be intending it another way. But I want, so I want you to think about this. Look at what happens next. In John chapter 3, verse 4, Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? So obviously Nicodemus heard Jesus say, you must be born again. And yet Jesus answered in this way, verses 5 and 6, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of spirit is spirit. And so it almost seems like at this point, Jesus is not saying you must be born again 
but you must be born from above. You see, we need both kinds of birth. You can't have a spiritual birth unless you first have a physical birth. We can't see or enter into the kingdom of God unless we have this new spiritual birth. And so Jesus continues his comments. And and so as we move forward, I want to help us understand something that we would see if we could read Greek. I wish I could. So I'm depending on commentaries and lexicons and all that kind of stuff for this. But if we could see Greek, we would understand Jesus is going back and forth between the singular you and the plural you. And in English, we just have one word, you, unless you're from the South and then you'd say y'all or all y'all, right? So we're going to go back and forth. I'm, we put some words on the screen that will be in, in brackets so you know it's my words or my transliteration of what is there. So continuing, John chapters 3, verses 7 and 8. It says, Do not marvel that I say to you, you all must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. And though he is talking to Nicodemus, that statement, you must be born again, seems to be directed at more than just Nicodemus. It seems to be this broader statement. Maybe he's talking to Nick and all his disciples. Maybe he's talking to us, implying y'all must be born again. The point that Jesus seems to be making is that it is the Spirit The breath of God that gives this new birth is the spirit that initiates it. And it is mysterious in that. It's not something that we can earn by following religious laws or listening to certain teaching. It must be born by the spirit. And so Nicodemus, he's frankly beside himself. And he replies in in John 3, 9, how can these things be? You see, as I mentioned in the midweek email, I don't get the ins and outs of electricity. I don't understand the relationship between watts and amps and kilowatt hours. I just don't get it. People have tried to explain it to me. I've tried to study it with solar panels. I've tried to study it with electric cars because I love reading about electric cars. I just don't get it. I know they go fast. And when you run out of charge, you better get a charge again. But Nicodemus is like me with electricity. He just doesn't get it. He is missing the point. Because all of the things that he has been taught up to this point, everything that he has learned is being called into question. I did all this. I knew this. I know scripture. And yet what? And so Jesus replies in verses 10 to 15, Are you the teacher of Israel and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and we bear witness to what we have seen. And here's some of those other words. But you all do not receive our testimony. And if I have told you all earthly things and you all do not believe, how can you all believe if I tell you you all heavenly things? No one has ascended to heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses, is, Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. 
So Jesus seems to be responding directly to Nicodemus about certain things, but then broadens it again to that you all, to everybody. Maybe it's all the religious leaders. Maybe it's all those people who just didn't get what Jesus came to do. But the main point that Jesus is making is that they have had earthly things, earthly teachers, earthly laws, covenants, and expectations as a means of instruction, and yet they missed the point. They missed that all of that was designed to teach something more, and they can't understand heavenly things because they don't have ears to hear. And I think what's more is that Jesus seems to be telling them that that they have to go to the source. They have to go to the one who has been there and has come from heaven to communicate the things of heaven. And ultimately, with his comment about Moses lifting up the serpent, he's, he's reaching forward. He's saying, look, the Son of Man is going to have to be lifted up on a cross. Every time that phrase is used in the book of John, it, it points to the cross. But then the commentary continues, as, as Tyler read earlier, starting in verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life for god did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but in order in order that the world might be saved through him so here we get a bit of a clearer picture of why jesus came he came not to condemn he came to bring a means of salvation he came out of love out of, the, out of love that God willingly sacrificed his own son as a replacement, a propitiation for our sin. But notice that this theme of condemnation gets introduced. Continue on in verse 18. It says, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. So here we get to see Jesus is laying out this, demo, this line of demarcation. He's saying, hey, there's two kinds of people. There are the saved and there are the condemned. So then the question becomes, who are the saved? What are they saved from? And really, the, Jesus' very simple answer here is they are saved from condemnation. Well, then it jumps to the next question. Why are the condemned condemned? Why are they in that boat? And the next couple of verses provide us that answer. In verses 19 and 20, it says, And this is the judgment. Light has come into the world, and the people loved darkness rather than light, because their works are evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. So what we have to recognize is Jesus is basically saying people are condemned because of what they did with the light. They chose to reject the light that had come into the world from God. They can choose to recognize and accept the light or they can choose to reject it. There is no middle ground. There's no fence sitting. The condemned are the condemned because they rejected Jesus. The saved are saved because they accepted him. So many ways it's as simple as that. They believed in him. 
But see, this brings up some language that we got introduced to a few weeks ago when we were considering John chapter 1. And in verses 4 to 5, John, John writes, In him, meaning in Jesus, the word made flesh, was life, and that life was the light of man. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And then he continues in verse 9. True light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. So now Jesus, the Son, has come into the world as a means of light, as a means of life-giving light. He illumined the way for us, gave us understanding of how to live. He provided the means of being able to have a relationship with God through his death, burial, and resurrection. And in many ways, he provided the means for us to live rightly before God. And so this passage concludes with this comment in verse 21, chapter 3, verse 21. It says, but whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may clearly be seen that his works have been carried out in God. Let me read that again. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that what so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. You see, when we step into the light of God's love, as we get to see in Jesus Christ, his light reveals that it is God working in us. The good things we do, we do because God enables us to do them. The belief that we have, we have because God has enabled us to believe. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And that is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of work, so that no one may boast. And the Apostle Paul elsewhere describes it this way, Galatians 2.20, For I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved himself and gave himself for me. There's really a lot more that we could unpack. In fact, I was talking to Danielle about some stuff. I was like, well, that would just muddy the waters. But I want us just to kind of pull in and think about a few things that we can ponder. So if you want to take notes, if you like filling in the blanks, here's the place. And I, I will admit in your outlines, there are some blanks that are missing. That's an editorial thing that I overlooked when Renetta sent that to me. One of the programs we use doesn't like blanks that don't have a period or something at the end of the line so that it just gets dropped off but the first thing to consider is this new birth is required to see the kingdom of kingdom of god we saw that in verse three jesus said that unless one is born again or born from above he or she can't see the kingdom think about this for people who are not born from above born again the things that we do in, in Christian world, the things of the kingdom, seem like strange, haphazard coincidences. The work of God seems bizarre to those who don't understand, who don't, those who have not been given eyes to see. But not only is new birth required to see the kingdom, we see secondly that spiritual birth is required to enter the kingdom. Jesus said that we have been born with water or the flesh and we must be born of the spirit in order to be a part of the of God's kingdom. And see, in our American culture, so many of the things that we want, we want to earn it, right? We want to earn the things that we have. 
But let me ask you this. How did you come into the world? How did you come into the world? Did you earn your way into the world? Did you work for it? No. We came into the world as a product of love. And when the time of our physical birth came to fruition, we, you and I, had little to nothing to do with it. It was all on our moms. Thank you, moms. And, and the way that God designed our, our bodies to grow and do all that, but it needed that nurturing environment. But when it was time to, to come out, it was all our mom's work, and it was hard work. Moms endured the pain. Moms experienced the labor. We just come out helpless, crying, blind, waiting for something more. But I want us to understand that I think Jesus uses this word of birth so that we would understand spiritual birth is the same way. We don't earn it. It is a product of the love of God. Jesus is the one who endured the cross on our behalf. Jesus is the one who experienced our pain, the pain of our sin. He labored on our behalf and the Holy Spirit now works to draw us to him helping us come to faith. But third, the third point that I think we need to think about is that we must be willing to receive the testimony of the word because it comes from God. We see this in verses 10 to 14. You see, there's a sense in which we must be willing to admit there are things that we don't know. There are unknown unknowns. If you have a background in military, you, you probably have heard things like known knowns and known unknowns and unknown unknowns. In 2002, Donald Rumsfeld, when he was Secretary of Defense, he made this statement. He said, reports that say that something hasn't happened are always interesting to me. Because as we know, there are known knowns. There are things we know we know. There's a lot of double speak here, so think here, listen carefully. We also know that there are known unknowns. That is to say, we know there are some things that we do not know. But there are also unknown unknowns. The ones we don't know that we don't know. And if one looks throughout history of our country and other free countries, it is the latter category that tend to be the difficult ones. I bring that up because I think that when we think that, you know, there, there comes a time when we may think that we know everything there is to know about God or everything we think we need to know about God. I think Nicodemus and the Pharisees knew that they knew how to live and how to teach. But Jesus seemed to step onto the scene as an unknown unknown. He should have been a known known. But he stepped on as an unknown because they were unwilling to put aside what they thought they knew in order to learn from him. We must be willing to receive his testimony because he is instructing us about the kingdom. You see, outside of simply impacting our view of the kingdom and salvation, we need to continually look to God to help us understand how to live and act as believers. Submitting our actions submitting our politics to the word. 
And it is easy for us to get caught up into things that sound Christian or even seem biblical without verifying that it is. And let me give you an example. I I forget if I've shared this before, but I have a a friend who came up to me and, and she said, Joel, tell me in the Bible where it says that God helps those who help themselves. And I had to smile at her and say, oh, that's not in the Bible. You see, there are things that sound Christian. They sound, gummy sounds. No, that doesn't even sound biblical at all. Because God is not that way. In fact, if God helped those who helped themselves, then we could earn our salvation. But God, that's not the way that God works. I think it also means that when we read the word, we truly must read it and allow the word of God to sink in. If you've been a believer for any number of years, you know that you can, you can read over You read over passages and you think, oh, okay, I've read that a million times. Some of us get, you know, read through the Bible uh, uh, once a year, twice a year, three times a year. But I want to encourage you to let it sink in. Read it slowly. Read it attentively. Read it reflectively. Read it each time as though it's the first time, allowing the mystery of the Word of God to speak into our lives. And we could, we could go on, but I want to just encourage us to submit everything that we think might be biblical. Submit it to the Bible. Check it out. Verify it. Pray for understanding and receive the Word of God. Not clever words of people. There's another point that I think we need to see is that belief in the Son and His work is the mode of new spiritual birth. As we mentioned before, the way that we come to this new birth is through the Son. It is through His finished work on the cross. It is through His death, burial, and resurrection. And so I want to ask you, have you received this free gift? Have you received it by repenting of your sin and entrusting your life to him. You see, that's why he came. He came to bring life. But it's not an automatic thing. But there's one final point that I think is important for us to think about. And that is as long as we have breath, there is hope for those who miss the point. As long as we have breath, there's hope for those who miss the point. You see, Nicodemus seems to be one of those guys who just didn't get it. And if we were to leave this conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus, we might end it thinking they just agreed to disagree. They kind of parted ways. Never, Never the twain shall meet again. And yet, I'm thankful that John wrote, the, wrote his gospel the way that he did because he helps us to see that even a guy like Nicodemus, there is hope. John chapter 7, verse 50 and 51. Sometime later in Jesus' ministry, Nicodemus stood up before the Sanhedrin and he was telling them, you know, he's basically defending Jesus. He says, Nicodemus, who had gone before him and who was, who was one of them, said to them, the Sanhedrin, does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? He's trying to tell the Sanhedrin, hey guys, pay attention. Listen to what he's saying. And then after that, he got accused of being his follower. 
Still later on, after Jesus' death on the cross, Nicodemus, Nicodemus joined Joseph of Arimathea. And he prepared Jesus' body for the tomb. Look at what it says in chapter 19, verse 39. It says, Nicodemus also, who, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. Nicodemus finally got it. He may not have fully understood at the beginning, but I think Nicodemus became a follower of Christ somewhere in there. God opened his eyes. He came. He had a new spiritual birth. And so I think for us, we need to understand is that as long as you have breath, there is still hope to come to Christ. There is still hope to come to him. There's still hope for you to turn and trust him. But the question I have for you is, do you know when your last breath will be? We don't know. So maybe today is a day of salvation. And if you want to try to understand that more, I'd love to talk to you after church or sometime this week. Let's open the word of God together. And let me help you understand the love that God has for you. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you so much for this conversation between Nicodemus and, and Jesus. Lord, we thank you for the things that you're teaching us and the way that you're instructing us. And God, I pray that you would help us submit everything that we think is Christian to you, to your word, that we might live fully honorably before you. And God, for those of us who have not yet believed, I pray that you would give us the faith to believe. Open our eyes that we might see and understand the depth of your love for us. Father, for those who don't yet believe, I pray you'd help them by your spirit to move from the realm of the condemned to the realm of the saved. Give them boldness to trust you. Give them faith, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.